Hey guys. Hey man, thanks for having us. Good to come see in, you, man. Come in, please. Yeah, we're happy. Sir. Welcome. Oh, what is that? Yeah, man. What is that smell? Well, what do you mean? I I can smell anything. It it kind of stinks in here. Oh, I don't. I bet it's like that thing where you know everybody's house smells kind of weird, but you can never really smell your own house because like you're you're desensitized to it or something, you know? Yeah, but I don't think that's it. I mean, it really stinks in here. Well, uh, just forget about it. I, I I'm sure it'll pass. Uh, do you guys want some of my sandwich? I'm I'm not going to finish this. No thanks. No thanks. Cool. Okay. Oh man, you're you're just gonna throw the half of that sandwich in the corner there, and and leave it? Guys, uh, listen. I, I'm sorry. J- just ignore this. Um, I'm not really a neat kind of guy, but you know I can't help it. It's it's a curse. But uh, just forget about it. I forget I said anything. I'm sorry. Did you just say curse? Yeah, but what curse? Well, my family has been cursed for for like the past nine generations or so. We've all been extremely messy, and there's there's nothing we can do about it, really. We don't really know how it started, but but since I can remember, things around my family members always end up stained or or, or greasy or yucky or whatever. What do you mean you can't help it? Like, look at this cushion; it's filthy. You're telling me that there's a curse that is stopping you from taking the cover off and washing it. Well, it's it's not like that exactly. I I can't technically wash it, but that doesn't just make the curse go away. B- believe me, I tried. That that cushion will eventually get just as dirty soon enough. But I mean, what I I mean, what makes you think it's a curse? Listen, guys, people in my family don't really like talking about this. We we can't escape the curse. My great-great-grandpapa even moved here from Norway to try and escape the curse, but it's as if the stench and the flies kind of followed him over here. It's helpless. When he built our family home here, the first bit of the house he built was, you know, somewhere to put the garbage cans at. But have you ever tried just getting into some sort of cleaning routine? Turn it into a habit or something, you know, keeping to a minimum level of cleanliness. Uh, yeah, man, of course I did. But as soon as I stopped cleaning, everything just seems to get dirty all over again. Have you guys ever been cursed? It's not an easy life, believe me. You're not supposed to just stop cleaning at any point. I mean, everyone cleans every once in a while. Y- you don't have to tell me that. My mom's auntie Pearl, bless her, she used to clean once a week. Once a week, her entire life. She thought she could outlive the curse, but... You know, then one day when she was nine years old, she she thought she was in the clear. She stopped cleaning, and you know what happened? That's right, Phil. On this episode of the podcast, we'll start off with the tavern talk, talking about all types of phone stuff, how we set up our phones, and how we describe our relationships with our phones. In the main discussion, we talk about a story-based video game called What Remains of Edith Finch. And then I will introduce the topic of next episode, which is Joni Mitchell's 1971 album, Baloo. Hello, and welcome to The Culture Quest. We are but humble adventurers, and today we can't help but wonder if there's anything weird going on with our own families. With me, as always, are Peter. Hello. And Barrio. I've started wondering now. Is there something wrong? <laughs> and I am in none. <laughs> Thank you, the listeners at home, for taking part in our noble quest. Today we're discussing the video game What Remains of Edith Finch, a first-person kind of adventure video game. I would maybe call it an interactive story or interactive movie made by Giant Sparrow that was released in 2017. I think I mentioned it on our last episode that I became interested in video games around that time, around when this game came out, and I kept hearing about this game. So many recommendations that I got for this game. So 
We'll get into it and see what we think about it in a bit. But first, let's enjoy some Tavern Talk. Tavern Talk. Today, we've decided to talk about something that I, I think we're all interested in and we've never really brought up before. Uh, we're going to do a bit of tech talk mainly. Uh, we're going to be talking about our phones. Um, we're breaking down the S21 uh, Ultimate Edition. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about the fourth camera lens? <laughs> I love the two megapixel um, macro Not lens. Not enough it's camera lenses. Of shooting my macros. <laughs> They're so small to shoot. So this conversation was mainly inspired by the latest Assorted Goods episode, latest currently, um, which is about uh, phone addiction, which I totally recommend you go and listen to. Uh, great episode. And I'll, I'll say I'm a nerd for phones. I follow the news. I love seeing reviews of new devices and stuff. I'm always kind of wondering about how different people use their phones and what they use it for. So I figured maybe we should give this a shot. So like, how would you describe your relationship with your phone? Like, can you go a day without it? Is it more important to you than some people are? When did I first get a phone? It wouldn't have been, it would have been like 2000 and maybe 10 or 11. I got a phone and up, up until I'd say that first four years, maybe till 2015, my relationship with my phone was great. It was just, I was on sort of like these light social medias, I guess you could call them like, you know, the Facebook or whatever it is. Like they're not the super, like when I say light, I mean, they weren't super like addictive. Like I think they are now. It was just like mostly for just for the chat function. And, um, I, most of the things I had on my phone were games and even music I didn't really have because Spotify wasn't around then. So it was just like downloaded music and you could have Apple music or Apple iTunes, but like you had to buy like every album outright. So I think I had a little bit of music, but it was like two albums. So it was mostly just, um, even YouTube wasn't that big for me. I was mostly just doing like doodle jump and other games and stuff. But the relationship with the phone was great. It was just a useful tool. And um, yeah, like there was literally no downside. And then as soon as it hit university in 2016, I noticed that I wasn't really happy with how I was using it. Like I was just, I just would waste like mornings and stuff like that doing it. And I'd just feel like, why would I do that? And then the next morning I'd just do the same thing. So I'd say from like 2016 to 2019 was just like, pretty much in the grips of phone addiction, not like heavy phone addiction. I definitely know there were some people more addicted to their phone. And also I wasn't on the social medias in, um, in uni. I was only on just text message, <laughs> uh, and email, I guess. So, um, I, I didn't really, um, didn't really find it like as bad as some people might've. And then 2020, I think I got onto Twitter and to Reddit, which are quite addictive. Yet I also got I went on the idea of maybe leaving my phone at home just to see what it would be like and I'm trying to be doing it more and more and more. Recently, I got the Apple Watch, which is another piece of technology that actually allows me to like leave the phone at home and I could still like pay for things by like tapping my watch and listen to music through um, headphones and stuff like that. Like it actually allows me to um, not have my phone. So I'd say if I could actually, um, if there was just a few more apps, like if I could pay for like parking and stuff like that with my watch, then I could, I reckon I could go to work five days a week and not bring my phone. But unfortunately there's like a few like work related sort of like authentication apps I need. But if it wasn't for that, I feel like I could actually do it. But because I bring it, I feel like there's always that tiny distraction. So I'm sort of like transitioning to 
more of a nomad lifestyle with it. Like I can definitely be away mm. from my phone and it's not not the worst thing in the world. Do you get all of your notifications on the Apple Watch or uh no. like texts and emails and everything? For the for the phone, I've turned all I turned all my notifications off and then um as default and then turn on the ones I want. So even for like Uber Eats and something, I don't get the notifications for when the driver's here. So um just like stuff like that. And then the watch is the same thing. I just don't get any of the notifications except for like very important things like texts and calls. So yeah, I, I don't have any really group chats more than just a couple people and anything like that. So notification wise, I'm pretty good. What about you, Barrio? How do you see your phone? Well, I feel that I'm not that dependent on it, but like I'm, I'm in front of a computer all day. So I'm always connected. I, I don't really need the phone to be connected. I don't, I don't use my phone for games. So it's mostly about communication and the frequent chillaxing at the end of the day where you just empty your mind and scroll away. I'm incredibly grateful for living in the smartphone era. Like I always felt that I, I'm not good at remembering people's phone numbers and I'm not really good at navigating. Like I want to be able to reach information easily and not go all the way through. Like I remember this one time before there were smartphones where my dad had a laptop and that that was like a crazy thing for that time. And he went abroad someday and he left me the laptop and I just went with it wherever because I could go online and it seemed amazing to me to, to be able to go online from wow. anywhere. Man, that's our life now. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't trivial to be online all the time. When, when I got my first smartphone, around 2011 like I had a phone since I was like 16 but I, I don't really consider it like I'd never used them until I got a smartphone so when I got my first smartphone for a few years I couldn't stop messing around with it like I always wanted to see like what new and interesting things my phone could do but I was more out of curiosity because like I found that mostly when there was something new and interesting that my phone could do, I didn't really need that. I didn't really use that function too much. So I was really addicted to my phone. I kept playing with it, kept doing stuff on it, kept messing around with the you know, Android uh, operating system and stuff. But then, I don't know, I kind of felt bad about it. Like I felt that it's destroying my brain slowly. At some point, I just started hating it. You know, I started stripping my phone down. I set it up like to be as simple as I could. And now... Oh, I, I feel pretty good about my phone. Like, I used to think that my phone should be my productivity and efficiency companion, a tool that's always on me that I can always use to do stuff. But after a while, I realized that I don't really do stuff on it. So now I look at my phone as a WhatsApp, podcasts, music, and note-taking machine that also has a camera. Watch. Don't oh, yeah, and watch, watch. And watch. And obviously, you know, I say it's mainly that because I use... Uh, uh, there's other things I, I do on it. Like, I do use it for navigation. I do Google stuff all the time. I use a calculator sometimes. But it's mainly that. It's mainly WhatsApp, podcasts, and music. I don't use my phone for anything that's related for work. I don't use it to access any social networks. I recently have deleted the Reddit app from my phone because that was a huge problem for me. Yeah, yeah. And uh, most of what I use my phone for is, is you know, stuff that I do in the background of other stuff, like podcasts and music. And yeah, uh, that's basically it. Like, I, I think I use my phone less than average. 
the next thing that I am always interested in, like when I have someone else's phone in my hands or when I'm talking to other people about setting up the phone is, uh, is there a specific way you set up your phone? Is there like a specific way, a certain way that you like your phone to work? I can go first if you want like an example of what I do. Yeah, sure. So I, 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 like I said, I set my phone up to be as simple as possible. I'm on Android and whenever I set up a new phone or like reset my old phone, the first thing I do is go to developer settings, turn off all of the animations, I delete or hide any app that I don't use. I remove all of the functions that I don't use on the quick settings bar, whatever it's called. I remove all of the icons from my homepage. I make sure that there aren't multiple uh, pages, obviously. I move all of the icons to the bottom of the screen so you know they'll be as close to my thumb as they can be. Another thing I do is that I use a custom launcher, Nova Launcher, which the only thing I use it for is to set up gestures that I like to use on my phone. Like when you're on my phone on the homepage to uh, open Chrome, you just double tap the screen, um, swipe up, opens my podcast app and swiping down uh, pulls down the notification panel. So just stuff I get used to. And lastly, I always have my phone on mute mode. That is no ringtones, no system sounds, oh, yeah. no vibrations, nothing. Who is not putting it on mute? That's that's the question. There are people that not only have vibrations and system sounds and, and like ringtones and everything, but also have those like little clicks when they type. Like, Oh my God, that's, that's amazing. I can't even listen to it. When people are just sitting there and clicking all day long, I could kill someone. <laughs> <laughs> so you would pick a phone over your human human life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I started muting my phone, I was kind of afraid that I would miss important notifications and stuff. But, you know, I look at my phone every few minutes or so. So even if there is something important, it never has to wait that long. It never caused a problem for me. Well, how do you guys set up your phone? Is there anything that you like have to have specifically set up in a certain way? You're giving me an excuse to look at my phone. Nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not super interesting, but um, I recently went from using Android for about five years to using iPhone because iPhone released their smallest phone, which is the iPhone 12 mini. And I love small phones. So... Yeah, so basically with this one, I can one hand it and I don't need another hand to click things and I can reach all corners. But if I do want to reach the control center, it's a little bit of a stretch, like you have to shift. So if I double tap on the back of the phone, that comes down. Oh. So then it becomes even more one handable. Uh, in terms of like the screen, Apple just recently with, I think, iOS 14, they made like widgets a thing. So um, I'm quite a fan of them. So the first page, I like to have like all the standard apps. Um, I don't use them all, but it's nice just to have them there. And also at the bottom, I have like a sleep thing. So I have like a sleep app. It's called Auto Sleep. And if you wear any sort of watch, it'll allow, well, not any sort of watch. You can't wear like a Rolex or anything. But, um, <laughs> like a smartwatch, it'll um, track your sleep. And I just love seeing to the minute, well, basically to the minute, like how much sleep I had, because then I know if I'm tired or if I'm something else. If I go to the next page, I've got like a Google widget, which is just you can either search using your thumbs, like a like a dweeb, or you can <laughs> use Google Lens, Google Voice Search, or incognito mode for, you know, researching about government things. Then I've got a um, very cool widget that I'm very proud of. 
it's the Apple Music app and the Apple Podcast app. But if you, you can like scroll through it like a little sort of rotating thing, it's it's very nice. It's very aesthetic, and that's where I get my podcasts and my music. And that's basically what I use my phone for: podcasts and music. But then I have some sort of my favorite apps. This is like my favorite screen. So I've got the Watch app if I want to, you know, do things on my watch. I've got the Ember app. It's like a digitally controlled mug. It's absolutely fantastic. Massive waste of money, but it's so good. <laughs> it's like a temperature controlled mug. It's very good. Like If you want to just drink everything at the right temperature, it's very good. Uh, I've got Goodreads, I've got the Apple Books app, I've got Stan, which is an Australian Netflix, I've got Netflix, which is a Netflix Netflix, and I've got YouTube. I've got Hibitica, which it was literally like two episodes ago, maybe two or three, <laughs> which two. I was like trying to get a sponsorship from because I thought it was just like <laughs> the best thing. And honestly, I haven't checked in like three days and it keeps telling me and I have so many red icons on it. It's just stressing me out. So <laughs> yeah. sorry guys, but it's, it's tough. We, we have a new quest in the oh. party. The last, uh, latest oh, quest. Yeah. I'm sorry guys. It, I'm not overboard yet, but like, I, you know. Man, I'm like a, a level 15 mage riding a panda with a flying pig or something. Oh. I'm not even sure what's happening there anymore. <laughs> I've probably got like minus 500 health. Um, and Audible. I've got Audible because obviously Audible is the best. And then I've got like a battery widget, which tells me the battery of the phone. Because you can't get the percentage on the iPhone at the top. You shouldn't it's, have it's, the percentage. You should have the percentage because that tells you what it is. Like why? Okay. So why would you not want the percentage? Having like that small little thing, it's like you may as well just have a message saying, ah, you'll be right, mate. Like it's just a guess at that point. You don't need more than a guess. I used to look at the battery percentage every couple of minutes and like, oh, it dropped by two, it dropped by three. And I got so stressed out by that. I just don't need it. Like I can trust my phone, my battery to, to last like 10 hours at the very least. That's funny because I, I care way more about the percentage, whereas I don't care about the actual battery. Like, the if I'm on like 20% at 9am, I don't care. I'll run out. I'll just go the day without it. Like, it's fine. But you seem to care a lot about the actual battery and not much about the stats. <laughs> no, I used to. I used to. Uh, I used oh, to stress okay. out about that all, all the time. Like, I used to optimize my phone to keep the battery going as mm. as long as I could. I always used to have like a spare battery. So since I've canceled my the, the percentages, I don't even think about the battery. And like I get a notification when it's dropped below 15, which gives me, I don't know, like I at least 30 minutes. I say, tell me when it's on zero, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually similar to the way it, I it run my, my car battery system, which is just putting gas in it. Like uh, I'll fill up when it like, it, it'll say zero kilometers you need to go to a petrol station now otherwise you literally like not have you know we won't be able to drive and then i'll be like <laughs> snooze and then like <laughs> i reckon i get another 100ks out of it. but but don't you but don't you plan for like i don't know hours ahead like your day or something because like i i like the percentage not because i'm getting stressed about it if i'm heading out and I know that I won't be around the charger, then like I can realize if I need to charge before that or not. Yeah, I can do that with other percentages, with just a, an estimation of where my phone is at, where my yeah, phone but, battery but is at. Yeah, but that estimation kind of sucks. It's more than good enough. Why don't, why don't you just have like a thumbs up or thumbs down? Wouldn't that just serve the same purpose? 
it, it, it'll just, it'll calculate like the time of day, how, your average screen time, how much battery you have left, like, and stuff like that. And then it just, it just boils it all down to either a thumbs up or thumbs down. <laughs> if it would work, the thumb up and a thumb down and I can rely on that, that sounds perfect. If it's reliable enough, I'll take it. Yeah, when I when I'm on like ten percent battery, I get that ten percent battery notification. When I'm like driving to work, I laugh at it because <laughs> it thinks I care about logistics, and I don't. So you didn't scare me, you know? Like it wants me to charge, and I'm not going to. And <laughs> you show that I know it was boss. It. That's my small little rebellion. Yeah, it's, it's just like, what are you going to do? Like, are you going to charge me? And I think I'm not. Like, too bad, too sad. You know, such a one-way <laughs> relationship. He asks for your attention, and you're like, "You're too dependent, phone. You need to be more like me. I don't care." Look, okay. If we're being real, I do kind of care, but I'm not going to let the phone know I care. You know, like that's. I'm not going to give it the satisfaction. It's sort of like, sure, in the abstract, I can imagine having a usable phone is better than not having one. But when it comes down to it and I run out of battery, you, it's like an evolutionary like shift. Like you can't dwell on that. You have to be like, I didn't want it. <laughs> I, this is fine. You know, like you have to like, <laughs> I didn't even recognize that was working before. That's fine. You know, it's like, it's just like such a sharp switch in my brain, my thought pattern. Like as soon as I run out of battery, I go, great. Didn't need it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So, What Remains of Edith Finch is a 2017 video game developed by Giant Sparrow. It's a rather short, very story-driven video game. And other than a few specific parts in which, you know, the gameplay kind of takes over a bit. Um, throughout the game, we play as Edith. And as we walk around and explore, she narrates the story and everything. Um, like, all of the lines she reads are basically a diary that she's writing about what she found that day, the day that we're playing. And in the beginning of the game, uh, we as Edith approach a house and Edith tells us that that was a house she grew up in, that she just inherited after her mother passed away and that she didn't think she'd be back there at all. And from the outside, it seems like the house seems a bit weird because it has a bunch of all kinds of weird additions to it. Like, it seems a bit freakish, but it has bright colors and it seems kind of nice. So it's it's kind of a weird mixture of things. And from the inside, it also seems a bit weird. Like it's filled with a, so many books. Um, some were written by the various family members who used to live there. And it gives a weird feeling, but it also seems warm and fun. And like each bedroom was specifically designed for its inhabitant. And it, it feels like there was a lot of love in it. And she tells us that now that she's back, she can see how many weird things seem normal to her to her when she grew up in that house. And she basically tells us that she's back to learn about the history of her family, a history that was hidden from her. Her mother, uh, before she died, she left her a key. Uh, and that key was literally the key to the family's history. I wasn't sure if it was going to be a nice family history, a pleasant story at all, or if it was going to be a sad or a scary story. Uh, but even before we reach the house, like at the very first couple of minutes of the game, we see signs about Edith's brother, Milton, who went missing a few years ago. And she tells us that they left the house uh, a day or so after 
uh, Lewis's funeral, her other brother, which kind of sets the tone of the game very early on. And as we explore the family's house, we'll learn about the history of five generations of Finches, if I'm not mistaken, of which Edith is the youngest, last surviving member at 17 years old. The chronological starting point of the, the Finch's history is Odin's story, the, the relevant story to the game. Um, Odin was Edith's great-great-grandfather, if I'm not mistaken. He lived in Norway. And I think they say that the family was well known there in Norway, partly because they were rich and partly because of the curse. The members of the Finch family, I'm not sure if they were called the Finch family in Norway, but the, the, the members of that family died either at a very young age or under very suspicious circumstances. And Odin, trying to basically run away from the curse, decided to leave Norway and he sailed towards America with his daughter, Edie, which is Edith's great-grandmother and namesake, and Edie's husband, Sven. I'm not sure exactly how they did it, but they literally took with them the family house. And as they were arriving at the shores of Washington State, a storm hit or something and the house drowned, Odin died, and Edie and Sven survived. They settled in Orcas Island uh, in Washington on a cliff which was overlooking the mostly sunk house that they brought along from Norway. And on that cliff, they built the new family house, the house that Edith is exploring. And as we learn throughout the game, the curse was still alive and well. We basically go from room to room and learn about how each one of Edith's family members died. And an interesting thing is that each of those stories is kind of a short minigame, in a way, uh, which makes the, the gameplay quite varied. Like, when you read about Molly's death, you play as various animals for a while. You become a cat, and then an owl, and then a shark, and then some kind of monster. And when you read about Barbara's death, you're actually reading a comic book, and at parts you're playing the character of Barbara in the comic. When you read about Sam's death, the story is shown to you through the lens of a camera. It's very interesting. And in the end of the game, during the last kind of cutscene of the game, we learned that Edith had died, and I think that it's hinted that she died while giving birth to her son. And her diary, her notebook containing all of the history of the family members is left for him, for her son. He's uh, the, the only surviving Finch at that point. And we, we see him visiting the Finch family house and basically learning about his family history, learning about all the stories that we've just gone through. And that is basically it. That is the, the kind of background of the game. Uh, we'll go deeper into some points, but before that, as usual... What were your kind of general thoughts about the game? It took me a while to understand that uh, this isn't your regular game that you need to solve things or in a puzzle kind of way. Like at the beginning, I kept looking for the non-trivial things to do just to kind of like find the hidden parts uh, of the game. But there aren't really, like other than, than Steam achievements that, that we went through like it's basically it and yeah. i gotta say that it was enjoyable because like you don't really have to think about it at all yeah you just you just go ahead and and that's nice because it's it's an interesting story and that's the way that it should be uh perceived like as you know mentioned like it's basically an interactive story where you like interactive stories also like maybe too big of a word because it's not you know you make things happen but 
not because you choose them to be. No, they're all part of the story. You're right. Like you can't just, when you're exploring the house, you can't pick up a book or open the fridge and look for any kind of details. Like the narration, the, the text of the narration isn't subtitles at the bottom of the screen. It's like part of the environment. And basically you could just follow it throughout the story. Yeah. This is like, you know, as a side note, it's, it's actually, it actually makes it a really easy game to recommend. Because even for people who aren't really into computer games, like you're saying, this is basically a two hours long interactive movie where you're, you're just experiencing something, but you don't really need to achieve anything. It's just pushing the, the plot forward. Yeah. And once you realize that, it, it gives a lot of space for the uh, scenery, for, for the actual story. You know, the characters are not that deep from the first glance, but, but, but it leaves room for them to be. Watching the trailer, it actually seemed like there was some like evil thing in the house that I was going to sort of be more like a detective and have to like defeat it and stuff like that and sort of use more like, um, what would you call induction or something like that to kind of piece together how to defeat the baddie or whatever. But it wasn't like that at all. It was, it was closer to a story than a game. I guess it is both, but story definitely describes it. And, um, yeah, as soon as I started playing it, it definitely felt, um, high quality. The narration as you walk through, which for some terrible video game players like me, that actually guides you where to go. It's actually like a little bit, it's quite nice. Like it, it holds your hand a little bit, but the narration is is good. It's not like, I feel like with say Firewatch or something like that, which we did an episode on, um, the narration was sometimes like the narration didn't really line up with where you were. Like you could trick the narration into saying something which wasn't relevant. Whereas this one seemed to be almost always good. The people that created the game were very good at knowing where you'd be where you when you'd see something. Um, so as you walk through, the timing does feel like quite natural how the narrator kind of says into the next thing. And the stories were like fantastic. Like I, I split the game into two parts. Before and after I was a shark scrambling across the highway. Yeah. Like <laughs> 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 before that i was like this is a bit of a cool game like you know and then after that i'm like oh, okay all right yeah this is this is weird but it's it's proud of being weird yeah. you know like <laughs> it's not going for realism here and also that was a bit where it really sunk into me like i mean it did transform into like three animals before that but yeah. <laughs> that was where i realized the unreliable narrator was actually like a positive component like it wasn't just a neutral bit it was kind of like they had fun with um the unreliable narrator like you get it with um i'll forget his name the one that worked in the fish um place lewis lewis yes um in terms of an unreliable narrator he it was experiencing thing in in his clouded judgment you know what i mean we weren't seeing reality as it was we were seeing it how he perceived it to be and that was necessary for that scene you know i thought that was that Spoiler alert, that was like one of my favorite bits of the um, the maybe, game. Maybe the best part of the game, I thought. Yeah, it's definitely something we could relate to. But yeah, everything was kind of fun. Like the one in the bathtub, I thought that was like eer- very eerie and like it's, it's just quite amazing how they contrast like the music and then the, the severity of what's actually happening. Oh, yeah. And um, <laughs> I, I think there was some moments where you were kind of going around walking 
which were not as fun, like the crawling around. But I think like, a very small trade-off for the amount of stories. Like you get like about what thirteen or something, yeah. sort of characters something in like there, that, yeah, yeah, and you get almost like maybe ten things where you actually go in and are acting as the characters. So it's um, it's pretty good. Like there's always going to be some that you won't enjoy, like out of the ten, that maybe there'll be like two or three that you don't like. But I think. Like as Anon said, they are sort of like mini games, except they are predetermined in a way. They're just for you to act out, I guess. I think it is good. I think that was like a really positive aspect, and I really enjoyed it. Um, sometimes I didn't feel like the full effect, like the full weight of the story, hit me um, until I had I had to kind of like dig in a little bit and like re- like consider some of the scenes like what the scenes actually meant for it to kind of hit home. I feel like this, say, I'll use a concrete example. Say using the one where I'm the camera and I'm like taking photos of everything. I I feel like that scene was actually quite a deep scene because if you realize she is his, his um, I'm forgetting all the names, but yeah, that's Dawn, Sam, which is Sam's, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Dawn is actually Sam's last uh, surviving child. Yeah. And it is like, obviously, they're trying to reconnect, you know, and he's not doing a great job, obviously, because she doesn't like shooting and it's it's just not, like, you can tell, like, the bond, it's not like this is, like, their 187th outing and this is just, oh, you know, go go do this. Like, it's clearly, like, you know, something that well, they're trying to reconnect, you know, and um, and it doesn't go well. No, obviously he does. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> it's like as pretty much as bad as it can get, and um, like that is actually quite like a riveting scene. But I feel like when I played it the first time, I was like, um, I was laughing, like not laughing, but I, I was like, oh, you know, this this horse is twitching or this deer is twitching, and then I'm like, oh, what's going to happen? Like, just I was I was focused on the very superficial bits of the story, whereas I felt like. It's probably my fault, but I feel like I did sort of gloss over some of the more meaningful bits when I played it. Mm. But um, but I'm, it doesn't mean they weren't there. Just yeah, just how I played it. But yeah, so overall, I had a pretty good time though. Uh, the the game really sucked me in. Like at first, I like Barrio said, I tried making sure that I'm not missing anything or walking by important details or anything. Or I kind of tried memorizing the dates and stuff in case I would need it, need that knowledge. But like Barrio, I then figured out that I should just follow the game and enjoy the story, at which point I kind of got into the groove and rhythm of the game, and then I had a lot of fun with it. I, I finished the game on my own. I played it uh, in the middle of the night in a dark room, which maybe wasn't the best idea, especially not in Barbara's story, because that was a bit scary. And then the next day, Barrio asked if I wanted to come over and play the game together. Well, and at first I thought, like, I didn't because I already played it. But then I figured I'll be able to see the stuff, all the stuff in a different light and, and kind of see the details that I've missed on my first playthrough. So we played it together. And, and I'll mention that going through this game twice was easier because it is a fairly short game. Like, if you just, you don't even have to dash through it. But if you just follow the story, it shouldn't take more than two hours or so. And I think that this game was really special. I thought that the atmosphere and the story were really captivating. The game manages to do a whole lot to tell them uh, like a huge story in just two hours. So I I really love the story. I think it was really well made. And um, as a whole, 
I don't know if this game is going on my all-time favorites list, but I do really recommend checking it out. It's a really easy game to get into. You can't lose. Win-win. So I, I think that when I finished the game, I wasn't really sure if there was if there was something metaphysical, if there was really a curse on the family or not. Much like you, Peter, I, I think I've glossed over a lot of important details. I think they were kind of hidden in plain sight. I think they were designed for you to kind of gloss over, but I, I don't know. I think I was concentrated, you know, on trying to remember all of the different stories and stuff that I didn't really put everything together and realize what it meant. And I got deeper into the game, and I have to say that there was like a video on YouTube that I thought really put everything in perspective and really kind of clarifies the story. Um, that video is called The Villain of Edith Finch by Joseph Anderson. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I really recommend watching it. I won't go too deeply into it. So definitely go and watch his video. I think that in the end, the story of the Finch family is not a story of a curse. It's a story of kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. Like throughout the game, I think it's mentioned twice, if I'm not mistaken, that maybe the stories of the death in the family are the cause of all of this and not a curse. Like, I think Dawn says that she lost two kids because of those stories. And um, Edith, as she's walking on that beach, she says something along the lines of, maybe we should let those stories go. Maybe it's not a... Maybe it's not a smart idea to write those down. I basically took that to mean that the Finch family members were... You know, so used to the idea that they might die young, they grew up with stories upon stories that proved that the curse is kind of real. And Edie, the, the great-grandmother of the family, she used to just keep talking about those stories. So, I don't know, I think that they almost went looking for death. You know, when, when someone did die, they blamed it on the curse instead of seeing that they, if they had any part in what happened and realizing that maybe they put themselves in harm's way. And obviously, the most influential family member in that regards was Edie, Edith's great-grandmother. We, we see how she was part, sometimes a subtle part, in a lot of the stories. Like, Edie was somewhat involved in some of the deaths and heavily involved in telling and repeating the stories and constantly putting them in everyone's head. Like, for example, Molly probably died because of eating poisonous berries after being sent to bed without dinner. Like, she had... Um, mistletoe berries in her room which are poisonous uh, and and she calls out to her mom Edie to say that she's hungry and Edie ignores her and I think she was locked in her room and Calvin died because he played on a swing that was Calvin was Edie's son he died playing on a swing that was placed on the edge of a cliff over a sharp fence and like, his story shows it from his brother's perspective. I think his brother was Sam. And he also doesn't realize the danger. But when you think about it, you realize that responsible parents wouldn't have allowed for a swing to be placed there. And Edie also seems to have accepted or even become proud of the family's weird traditions and stories. Like, a lot of the, the bedrooms have bec- become kind of shrines. And you kind of think, that might be normal, kind of a shrine to remember the people who used to live there, but they kind of glorify the death of those people. And also... Mm, they're like on display almost. Yeah. Like a museum. Yeah. It's it's really weird. Especially, I think Sven, her husband, she has like, like the front page of the newspaper that reported his death. Like it's framed and it's right in front of, of her bed. 
kind of like with the drawing she made of him. And it, it looks like a weird shrine for his death and not for his life. And she also does an interview telling people about a mole man living under the house. And we'll later realize it's referring to Walter, one of her kids that lives in the bunker under the house because he was traumatized by witnessing his older sister's murder. Kind of a weird thing. And in a comic book depicting Barbara's death, there's some detail there that probably only an adult member of the family could know and the, the key in the music box. So someone must have talked with the writer of the comic uh, yeah. and, and Itty could have been that someone. Yeah, like they've, they had a comic book strip made of their daughter's death. Like it's not the sign of like <laughs> a, you know, a distraught parent. It's more no. of the s- sign of like, it's like you're framing it, you know? Like it's, yeah. a very, yeah. it's a very odd thing to do. Very odd thing to do. It kind of seems like the Finches, maybe because they believed in the curse or because they were also always told that they might die soon, they had kind of a different definition of danger and risk than other people. Hmm. And I don't know, if you agree with the, that interpretation of the story, the story at first kind of seems to be a bunch of coincidences and accidents begins to seem like an eerie story about people who just weren't all in the right minds in some way, you know? Yeah, it like if you tell people they're going to die early, often it becomes true. And it's not like anything crazy. Like it's not like somehow that's ingrained in their brain and then they, as soon as they hit a certain age, they just, you know, find a way that to die. It's, it's more just like, it's more of a cultural aspect. Like, you know, if, it, say for instance, there's like, if you come from a family that's always worked sort of trade jobs, you've like never gone to college. Often the first person who goes to college is very proud because they're just like, you know, none, I'm the first person in my family to go to college because no one else in my family does. And often before that person goes to college, like there's nothing in their DNA that is restricting them from going to college. It's just, Mm. it's just like a way that you're brought up to just not seek that option like so for instance in this scenario if you grow up no thinking there's a curse you're not worried about like "Mm, is this playset is this swing set in a safe place or like should i like be more safety conscious or you know like no one's no one's planning to actually live a long life and the only person who does live a long life is actually like edie yeah she, I think she lived till she was like 90. She outlived like three or four generations of other finches. Such a weird it story. It doesn't say how she died, does it? Not it, exactly. I I, do you have a theory about it? I'm not sure. I thought she disappeared by the narration. Like, I didn't think she actually died. But I think that people know that she died because of the dates on her gravestone. Yeah. Well, here's my theory, right? Is like... Edie, Edie is the villain from, from from my point of view. Not not in any insidious way. She seemed like a loving person. You know, you could argue with the comic book strip and stuff. It seems like a very natural human thing to do to ascribe meaning to chaos. You know, like if yeah. someone dies, you want to prescribe meaning. Like, you know, yeah. That's what often people do with like heaven and stuff like that. But what I think she was doing was, I think she, I think she, it was just like a hobby. Like it was not, not, that seems a bit too light, but it seems like, you know, if something bad happens then it's like, great, now we can chalk it up to the curse and the curse yeah. gets bigger. And you know what? Like, even though the curse isn't a good thing, 
it's still something we're proud of. Like it's it's like like who cares if it's a good or a bad thing? Like yeah. it doesn't even really matter. It's just it's something. You know, it's something that differentiates us from everyone else. And I think um, when she said, you know, when when it says she died, I I don't know. It seems like the thing to do if you were Edie and you wanted to attract more attention to the curse is to say, look, I'm going to stay at the house. And then all you do is you write either your the date on the tombstone or you fake your death or something like that. Because then it's just another death. Like your own death would just be another thing for the curse. So in my eyes, I think she would have faked her death. I don't think she would have had a death of natural causes. I think she would have absolutely taken the opportunity to like put another one on the tally. But yeah, I'm maybe I'm just cynical. But yeah, I think the game implies that she died. I think the date on her tombstone implies that she died on the day they left the house, the same day where she drank wine while taking medications that you're not supposed to mix with alcohol. Mm, But I think she's just um, cracked all the pills and stuff like that, putting them in her pocket, and then like going away yeah and then you know yeah, that's what i thought just felt, oh wow the curse even took her body you know like one of those things but yeah i, I totally thought she just disappeared mm. if i remember correctly they're saying that the people who uh, came to take her to the old people's house or uh, whatever whatever you call it they just didn't find her the next day i i, I just assumed that she disappeared how very innocent of you yeah <laughs> 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 well, I was playing Edith. She was like 10 when that happened. And that's what yeah. my mom told me. <laughs> uh, there was, like, out of all the stories, there was one story that kind of stood out to me, not in terms of my favorite story, but in terms of, like, how it connected with the other stories. And that was um, Gregory's story. Gregory's story was kind of a, a bit different. Like, in the other stories, someone from the family was acting irresponsibly or putting someone or themselves or someone else in danger. But Gregory was a baby, like he wasn't able to take care of himself. And his mother, who was supposed to watch over him in the bathtub, and she didn't, she she wasn't a finch. Like she didn't grow up with a family curse surrounding her or whatever, Mm. uh, where she went. So she was technically supposed to be a responsible adult. So I don't know. I tried thinking about the importance of that story, like what that story brings to the table and the only thing i could think about was that maybe it was there to show us sam's reaction to what happened sam was gregory's father and he wasn't around when gregory died and like we learn after gregory died that sam and his wife i think her name was Kay, they separated and we see sam's letter to Kay, uh saying something along the lines of how it wasn't her fault and that she should maybe move on which is such a weird thing to say because definitely was her fault like i don't know we see her leaving gregory in the bathtub alone twice which is wildly dangerous i think i think this part is there to show how the finches have grown to accept death and move on Mm. maybe maybe it's there to show us that inside they're cold and maybe kind of robotic i don't know i don't know if it's from that just because from that i kind of see like even if she was in the wrong you might not say it just maybe not their baby just died their baby died and she's like i don't think we see a mention of k after like he was just trying to make her feel better and and you know maybe maybe it's also like what you say where he's just uh you know it's not her fault because of it's obviously it's the curse's fault yeah but something we kind of touched 
on earlier was I, I I think that this game does something really cool in making you see things one way the first time you play it. And then once you connect all the dots, suddenly everything seems to be kind of the opposite. Uh, at least that's how I felt. Like a good example for that, that also I kind of touched upon is, is the Finch family house. Uh, when you first look at it, seems a bit monstrous and weird. And if you look at the logo of the game, which shows a silhouette of the house, it seems a bit scary. But when you see it in the game, it is bright. It has warm colors to it. It makes you feel all kinds of things, like a mix of feelings. And uh, from the inside, you see how much was put in the designs of all of the rooms, especially the bedrooms. I especially liked Calvin's room, which has like the astronauts in space theme to it. And when you climb up the, 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 the newer parts of the house, you can feel, it feels like Edie, who we are told kind of designed and built everything, how much love she felt towards her family members, especially in like Milton's room. She built him like this castle with like round windows overlooking the, the surroundings of the house that he could spend time in and, and paint. And in Edith's room, which is like at the top of the tower, which just feels warm and and colorful and loving. So, I don't know, I went through the game kind of feeling worth to, towards the house. But, you know, once the game was over, you realize how much weird stuff went uh, inside of it. And you kind of add that to the idea that it wasn't, that most likely, it wasn't just a bunch of coincidences happening to helpless, innocent people. It was a bunch of, I don't know, weird people that brought it upon themselves, kind of. So it, it kind of changes how I saw the house. You know, the, the second time we played the, the the game, the second time I played the game with Barrio, walking, approaching the house felt weird to me. Like, I didn't want to get in there. Mm. Another example is Edie's character, which I think throughout the game, you know, I thought of Edie as a loving, sensible character, a loving grandma that was only trying to lead a normal life. Like, throughout the game, we hear nice stuff about her from Edith. And, like, she remembers her as a great grandma that was uh, uh, loving. And we're told that she tried to run away from the curse with her father and start a new life. But probably there, there was no curse to run away from. And she was the main promoter of the curse in a way. And once you realize that she was probably kind of a, uh, I don't know how to say it, kind of a twisted person, she seems a bit scary. Then when you think about the connection and resemblance between Edie and Edith, it feels even weirder. Like you play as Edith throughout the game and you see what she sees, you learn what she learns and you kind of share her confusion, her pain and you identify with her. But in the end, I, at least for me, I think it's safe to say that, you know, she was a finch through and through. Like there were a lot of connections between Edie and her other than the Mm. fact that they shared the same name. Like she doesn't even seem to be shocked by the stories. Like not only does she seem to just accept them, to us, it seems that she keeps them in her notebook as cute little drawings, which felt a bit creepy. Uh, in the end, she decides to pass on the stories of the family instead of letting them go. And mm. uh, for me, at least, I stopped feeling empathy towards Edith, and she became a bit disturbing to me. Yeah, I, I can see mm. that. Like, it's not real-time narration. Like, the game ends where she sits in her room, and then she starts to write everything down. Throughout the game, you're hearing the wor- her words like from the person she became at the end of this journey when she she's finding yeah. out. And and that actually kind of makes sense because something in her voice is kind of like exhausted and disappointed. Like it, Maybe after it, all those stories, she's become uh, a bit desensitized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She sounds empty, you know, and she th- she's thinking about living the, the stories to die with her. 
and she doesn't. I gotta say that I didn't really understand why. I think it's important to mention that Edith, like her mom Dawn, didn't let Edith grow up with those stories. Once Milton uh, disappeared, when Edith was four, I think, her mom Dawn blocked out all of the rooms in the house and she made sure that Edie didn't tell all of those creepy stories to Edith. And Edith kind of grew up to be more normal than the others. So you're you're wondering why Edith passed those stories uh, on to her son? Yeah, well, well, I guess to understand that, you have to understand, we have to realize if she actually believed, did she believe like her mom that knowing the stories or knowing the curse is actually what makes the curse happen? Kind of like in a Greek tragedy kind of way, yeah, where you have a prophecy and you trying to outrun that prophecy actually makes it come true. Maybe it's in their blood to... to maybe take pride in those stories and want to pass them on. I feel like Edie puts so much topspin on the the curse. Like It was like the Santa myth, but on steroids, it was just, <laughs> there's 100% a curse. And she probably started to believe it as well. Maybe she just always believed it or something. I'm not sure the level of self-deception. But there was no reality checking with Edie. Whereas with Dawn, Dawn was trying to sort of do kind of the opposite but there wasn't reality checking either it was more just burying it like she just didn't want she didn't want to explain it but she just wanted to sort of she didn't want um her daughter to see it yeah whereas i think edith does a better job of sort of doing the mix of both where she's explaining the deaths and the curse but i think she's leaving enough information like as evidenced by us who, who have looked at it to see Maybe there's enough clues for her her son to actually figure it out, you know. But so um, she's I, she's not but, glorifying it, but she's not avoiding it. Yeah. So I do think she's coming at it at a pretty good angle, but I'd say maybe she could have done a little bit more to say why, you know, she could have pointed out the hypocrisy with the comic book strip and stuff like that. Mm. But so yeah, I'm not sure how much really we should credit her with it, but. I do think I do think like the middle road between Dawn and Edie, who both didn't do a great job. I think if you actually take the middle of those two, it actually would go better. Which I do think huh. Edie's um, Edith is sort of in the middle of. That's a, a really interesting point, and that kind of leads me to the next detail that I think is worth mentioning, and that is um, Edith's son and and his broken hand. Mm. Um, like at the very beginning of the game, and the like, the very first few seconds. We actually play this unknown character, like we don't really see who we're playing. And you know, you look around at the surroundings until you see Edith's diary or Edith's notebook on your lap and the screen fades out and the story begins. And in in the very end, in the very last cutscene of the game, we learn that it was Edith's, um, Edith's son <laughs> uh, who was going to visit the family house and learn about his family's history. Um, and he was wearing a cast on his hand when we saw him and Calvin, you know, the boy who wanted to fly, also had a cast. And I think it's kind of another sign that the Finches had a tendency to put themselves in danger. I don't know, like, mm-hmm. you know, those poisonous berries in Molly's room and Sam taking pictures on that cliff, Kay leaving a baby alone in the bathtub, and Edith not being allowed in the basement unless she wanted another tetanus shot. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it, you realize that it's just something that they do. And I don't I think that... What the cast on Edith's son hand means is that he's like that too. And 
maybe because he got the that Finch history book from Edith. You kind of said it. She's somewhere in between on the scale from Dawn, which avoided the, the curse altogether, and Edie, which glorified the curse. Maybe her stories didn't... I, I, I thought that the cast on his hand symbolized that, you know, he's another Finch. It's in his blood. Like, I thought that, you know, the metaphorical curse lives on in him. But maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe Edith's stories were written in a way that wouldn't ruin his life basically <laughs> but i think that's also you know kids get hurt you know kids break stuff you know it's it's it gives a nice a nice topic but it's it's not a it's not a definitive uh, conclusion i guess definitely not definitive but i think that there were so many small details and connections between all of the stories and and everything felt so well thought out the the, the story itself felt so meticulously crafted that I think that it has to mean something like that detail wouldn't have been there otherwise yeah I actually that the detail kind of contradicts what I would have thought would have happened because I thought the fact that Edith died he would have obviously been raised by another family and that would have been the test almost like splitting up Hmm. almost identical twins at birth to see if it's nature v nurture I thought he would have absolutely not had to have a cast or even had some modicum of like good health, like in terms of like the opposite of a cast, if you could have had one just to show that, Oh, see, without the stories, he's fine. But then he has one, even though he was raised somewhere else. So like the, the, the evidence is showing that it is in his blood, which is sort of the opposite of my whole. (laughs) So, (laughs) <laughs> I almost don't want to acknowledge it. I want to say, well, oh, you know, the cast means like he's probably being cared for well because you wouldn't have it. You just have an open <laughs> sore, if not. But then again, like th- that's contradicted by the fact that the swing setting guy, I forget, I forget Calvin the, that was on Calvin. He had a cast as well. So like, there's a clear similarity there. So like, obviously, they are going for the recklessness Finch vibe there, but. Yeah, so I don't really understand that bit. Do you guys have a favorite story, a favorite kind of? Oh, that's what I wanted story? to ask. <laughs> um, I think mine will might be the f- like a popular one, so maybe we'll go into it. But mine is definitely. Um, sorry, I'm forgetting all the names, but um, you must be thinking about Lewis. Lewis, yes. Um, Lewis was my favorite because it was just so well done. Like it, he's the person at the fish. Yeah. The tuna factory. And um yeah, the cannery. Basically you you control your right stick with his right hand and you just grab the the fish and salmon. Then yeah. The salmon fish, yeah. And um salmon is a type of fish. <laughs> no such thing as a fish. Anyway, um <laughs> you chop the head off and then you kind of throw it up onto like the conveyor belt. And you get good at doing it. In fact, I was very proud of how well I was doing it. <laughs> and then and then there's like another story on the left, which is like, it's, and, and you just have to control the character essentially. And it's like a, like a Pac-Man sort of esque vibe. Like you can only sort of go like very simple, very, very simple. Yeah. Right. But the, the fish stuff keeps on happening, but the, the story on the left gets slowly more complex and you see slowly less stuff of the fish factory. So it's like, it's, it's trying to give you like the simulation of 
doing something whilst trying to focus on something else. So like maybe you're at a cubicle doing like, you know, Excel workbook stuff, but you're thinking about like opening a coffee shop or something like that. It's like, it's trying to simulate it and it does such a good job. Like you do really feel like in two minds, you know, because you feel like you have this obligation to do like, what happens if I stop doing these fish? They're going to build up and block the screen and stuff like that. And then you have like this sort of complex thing going on in the left, which you want to master, but you always like every couple seconds you look at the fish and stuff and it slowly gets more complex and you have to pay less attention to the fish. And then there's gets to a bit where you actually have to make a decision. They're only minor decisions, but like you have to choose what phrasing he's going to use. Yeah. And like, it actually adds stress. I was like trying to read both, both phrases and also keep the fish stuff going and I end up going for the nice ones. That was always like a more, um, the, I think they were like the green roots or whatever. I, I think they literally don't matter. Like they're just, they literally stress don't you matter. out. Yeah. And they did stress me out, but I was in like, so in, invested in that, in that left screen that you almost forget. Like I've probably forgot like three or four times about the fish and then I'm like, oh no, the fish. And then <laughs> you have to keep doing it. And it's, it's just an amazing experience like it it's just i could not believe how well it hit like it just yeah. connected on every level for me and um the ending was very sad as well like he's he sort of takes the crown at the end like gets crowned but then it's actually him just like committing suicide so it's very it's very sad but um i think we can all relate to that on some level, not the suicide or the fish, but more so the wanting to be somewhere else, but you doing something, you know, monotonous. Ah, it was just an amazing piece of art. It was just incredible. Totally agree. It was my favorite part as well. Like, because it felt so eerily familiar. I was that guy. I used to work in like monotonous jobs, just repeating the same action for hours and just daydreaming for hours a day, you know? Like, I, I, I felt that. I, I was there. And that the, the two joysticks, the, the left stick controlling the imagined world and the right stick controlling the actual world, the, 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 the right hand, it just replicated that feeling so well, you know? I, I don't know. I think it was 10 minutes long, that scene, maybe less, but it mm. just worked so well for me. Like... It felt too familiar. I remember going to work in my early 20s and kind of waiting to get to work just so that I could start, you know, whatever it was I was doing and going back to daydreaming. I remember like picking up tasks that I knew would be long and boring, but would allow me to be alone and daydream for hours. And obviously for me, it never became something that was detrimental to my health or anything, but it's a weird feeling. And that game replicated it so so well, so so perfectly. Like, all of the stories were kind of interesting, but that one just hit too close to home. <laughs> I was working, like, fruit and veg and bakery and stuff like that, and it was literally, like, pretty much the fish stuff. And then in accounting, it starts off like that, and then slowly you actually, like, get to do more interesting stuff. So yeah. I'm, I'm glad I'm not in that same monotonous thing. But, I mean, I think it applies to, even now, it still applies. It's just, like, it's just a lesser extent, you know, because yeah. everyone in some days I just go in and I go, oh man, I wish I was like a full-time podcaster or something like that. That would be really great. But like, um, yeah, not to get into like a full rant about jobs, but like <laughs> you got to pick something like that you can go to sleep and not stress about. So I'm happy that that's the case, but like there's obviously like ideal situations. And I think 
he was totally lost in like the ideal situation. And as soon as you start only fantasizing about that, then you don't actually make your real world any better. You know what I mean? Like you need to make small improvements every day to actually like make your everyday life like tolerable, not just tolerable, but actually enjoyable. But you can't do that if you don't actually spend any time, you know, Mm. um, in the present. I got to say that I'm pretty much convinced that this was indeed like probably the greatest part because it was done beautifully and the way that uh, it, it kind of stretches until it becomes the whole world, you know, from a black and white two-dimensional maze to a fully 3D open world um, that that was amazing. And, and the way that, you know, I think the, the fact that we can all see ourselves in, in that situation, it's pretty amazing. That's kind of like a very good job of storytelling. I think every reviewer watched of the game mentioned that part as like their favorite bit. I think that they just yeah. knocked it but out of I, the park with but this But I got to say that before thinking about mm. it, I, I, I mentioned the scene with Gregory, the baby in the, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible scene, but it was done beautifully. Beautifully. It's so colorful. <laughs> yeah. It starts with, with uh, his father, Sam, telling how, how happy of a baby he, that, that kid was. And I wonder what he was seeing. And like, you're seeing it from his eyes and it's, it is amazing. Like this whole dance of toys and colors. Like beautiful music. Yeah. The music there Mm. was, was really pretty great on the spot. Everything was so colorful and beautiful and happy until he died. It was so wonderfully done. Horrible. By the way, I I wondered about the part where he sinks below water and you actually navigate inside the water and you see that his hands become green and it was so weird. And then I realized, I think he becomes the frog. Yeah. Yeah. The frog is the main toy he played with. Yeah. Which also is really weird because later when we're exploring the house, we see that frog on the, in Edie's room, in Edie's bathroom. Like she kept that frog mm. all those years and it's not like to the side. It's, it's like near her toothbrush or something it's so creepy i thought do we have any we didn't like i couldn't think of one i really didn't like i thought yeah. all of them had something to say and all of them kind of connected i i really think the story in this uh game is so well done i couldn't point at anything i really didn't like the probably the more simplistic one like uh with gus with the uh kite i think it was also done beautifully like, oh, yeah. Uh, Didn't mind that one. Yeah, how it starts calm and then there's this whole wreckage that's being drifted behind in, in the trail of the of the kite. That was just awesome. Yeah. It's something about Barbara's that I didn't like, actually. I don't know. There's, I, it was well done, actually, to be fair, like in terms of um, the story of it. Maybe the voice acting wasn't as good. Yeah. I, I don't know about the story about her losing, like, the, the high school kind of story. Yeah. I, I, I don't know about that. Like, the actual, like, the murder and was it Walter? <laughs> Forgetting what my name's. Hiding under the bed. Yeah. And, um, like, I did like that, but I just, I thought that the sort of the, the, the scream thing, being famous for a scream, I thought that was a bit weird. But, um, yeah, that's, like, the only thing didn't I didn't really, really think like. about that, yeah. So this game was an interactive story, I'd say, and um, it was actually really well developed and you can tell they've actually put some thought into it. They didn't just like bang up a 
a walkthrough of something. And um, it just has a lot of, I don't know if personality is the right word, but it definitely has a, a vibe that it, it preserves throughout the whole game that is very creepy. But it it's actually less creepy towards the end of the game hmm. when you start to piece it together. And it's more actually like a little bit philosophical in terms of like trying to decipher like why Edie was so intent on preserving this curse. And yeah, it's something I do like I did think about after playing it. And yeah, to be honest, like, is it a game that we will talk about for years on end? Probably not. Probably but, not. Um, for two hours of playing the game, it gives at least two hours of extra sort of conversational stuff behind yeah. it. And even if you just combine it with that video we'll link, um, even that alone is actually fills out the story, like rounds out the story quite nicely. So, yeah, it's actually something I had a lot of fun with. And this is our fourth video game now. Yeah. And this one is definitely like one of the more bizarre ones, yeah. I'd say. Yeah. The only thing maybe to its disadvantage to as i feel is that while an open ending is nice i feel that there are too many loose ends at the end of it which you know without getting too much into it again it's kind of like what happens with eddie is what happens with the book that uh, Edie wrote to edith and got uh, torn into two a lot of a lot of open questions that that are nice to discuss but Eventually, it kind of feels it feels incomplete. Uh, but other than that, it was really nicely done. I'll just comment on that. I, I thought that everything that was left open was kind of secondary. Like it didn't have as much importance to the story as other things they kind of took care of. Uh, I don't know. I thought that the story was just brilliant, just so detailed. Like... On this podcast, we talk about books and movies and TV shows and, and music and stuff. And I think that we never really get to talk about every aspect of every subject. Like, there's so much in each of those that it never fits in one episode. And also, we don't really get to know anything that deeply. Like, we don't we don't research things all the way through. But I don't know, usually, I think that we hit most of the important points at the very least. And this time, I feel like we've barely even scratched the tip of the iceberg. Like, we did hit the most important points. We hit everything that really matters, but there's so much to say about so many of the characters, uh, so many small details. Like, I think that the strongest part of this game, obviously, is its story. Like, I feel like each and every bit of information you get about the Finches sheds an unproportionally bright beam of light on the meaning of the story. Uh, I, I know that we've basically spoiled this game, but I think that it's still worth the time of getting into. Hmm. So, as we do, at the end of each step of our quest, we're going to take a vote that will decide whether or not what remains of Edith Finch has a place in the Culture Quest Essentials Guide, aka the Quag. We will vote with a gentlemanly tip of the hat for yay or an ominous stroke of the mustache for nay, and the vote must be unanimous in order for it to pass. My esteemed friends, let's have a vote. Do you guys want me to vote first because um, I chose this game? Yeah, go ahead. Sure. I, I, I'm sure it's clear. I'm sure everyone can see it from a mile away because I'm always tipping my hat, but I'm I'm going to tip my hat for this. I think it's a masterclass in storytelling, and I think it's, it's such an easy, short experience that I think everyone could enjoy. I, I'm, I'm tipping my hat for this. I'll go next. Um, I would 
sadly stroke my mustache. Like I can't, I can't ignore because this this game is not about it's not about the gameplay. You won't get anything from the gameplay. It's only about the story. It's just not not complete enough. I don't know. Peter, just out of curiosity, what would you have done? I was actually right on the fence. I I wasn't sure what I was going to say. I was probably leaning towards stroking my mustache, hmm. but it could have really gone either way. Um, and I would have had to really defend it if Barrio voted in, but I, a similar reason to Barrio, but I feel, yeah, cause it did rely a lot on the story. And if the story isn't top notch, it's a little bit sad because it's like, if it, the story was pretty good and if it just had more sort of gameplay to it, then maybe it wouldn't have mattered. But because it was fully focused on the story, it didn't have any gameplay. It could really get it past the finish line, but yeah, for me, I just feel like when I, whenever I put something in the Quag, I just kind of look at what we have in the Quag, and like most things in the Quag, I can kind of recommend outright. Like I don't have to attach a, a byline to it. Like, oh, it's really good. You know, there's some things that we, you know, you can kind of gloss over, and you might not get on the first go. But you know, other than that, it's pretty good. Like I feel like it, I, I just feel like I couldn't summarize that it's a great game without sort of hedging my bet a little bit, mm. you know? And I totally get it, um, yeah. it. It would have been nice to do it at the end of an episode to crown it, but then moving on next week, I would have remembered all those flaws and, you know, it just it wouldn't have felt like 100% right. But I feel bad actually a little bit because this is our fourth video game <laughs> and a video game hasn't made it yet. We'll but get it. We'll get one there. One day, yeah. we'll get it. We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, I'm pretty confident you guys haven't, um, heard this. I'll just, I'll just spoil what it is. But <laughs> so last time on the, on the culture quest, I introduced, um, Taylor Swift's folklore album and spoiler alert, we didn't love it. It just didn't feel like it was something we really enjoyed that much. And, um, you know, a little bit generic, but you know what, we gave it a go and that's fine. Yeah. But. I didn't want to leave like that. I, I wanted to have like another sort of studio album by another female artist that we could actually like leave and like sort of feel a bit better about. So not to leave a sour taste. Can I guess? You might get it. I'm, I, I don't know why. I thought I was listening to an album last night and I thought maybe I should tell Peter to, to choose this one. Is this an Amy Winehouse album? No, no, <laughs> okay. it's not. Nice the reason I thought you might get it is because it's been on our it's been on our shortlist actually. Okay. Um, it's it's an album from 1971, and it's from Joni Mitchell, who you oh. might remember from Deja Vu, the Deja Vu album, because she penned the Woodstock um, song, I believe. Yeah. And this one is her fourth album, and it's called Blue. And many people regard this as one of the greatest albums of all time. Oh wow! So wow. yeah, I haven't seen the track list, but I don't. I don't think I've heard of any of the songs of it. I'm sure I'll I recognize a few of the songs when I actually listen to it. But yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's only 35 minutes, so a little wow. bit shorter than Taylor Swift's album. I think but, it's the um, same length album length for uh, Deja Vu. Exactly. Really? Wow. <laughs> like to the minute. Mm. <laughs> so um, I've got high hopes for this one. 
oh man, it sounds great. Yeah, uh, I'm all in. Uh, and also, like a music album right now is, uh, I'm I'm looking for something new to listen to. This would be mm. perfect for me. What's the name of the album again? It's called Blue. And in all music, you get like a, a list of um, album moods for each album. And this one has bittersweet, brooding, earthy, exuberant. refined sophisticated all kinds of uh, sounds like a perfume yeah very much so <laughs> <laughs> so 10 songs over 35 minutes wow perfect. 10 songs is it 10 songs exactly the same as deja vu exactly like deja vu yeah is anyone going to make the joke that this is like deja vu mm. oh <laughs> peter peter <laughs> so oh, thank you peter thank you barrio for staying true to our goal And thank you, the listeners at home, for helping us along the latest stage of our quest. We hope that you join us again next episode, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye. The Culture Quest Podcast is part of All the People Network. Visit our website at culturequestpodcast.com to contact us or see a list of our upcoming episodes. Follow us on Twitter at CQ underline podcast and tell your friends about us. Find out more information about All The People Network and the other podcasts it includes at allthepeoplenetwork.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I just wanted to bring to everyone's attention all those people that are currently stuck without their phone and are forced to continue listening to this unless they pause it and then have to contemplate, you know, the state of their life and other things. So you'll probably just continue listening. I just wanted to give a bit of a shout out to a, um, a website, actually. It's called givewell.org. So that's give, G-I-V-E, well, W-E, double so it's it's a dot org so it's it's legit and um, basically they're the authority on who is worth giving money to in terms of charity so obviously we'll give money to friends and family if they fall on hard times but if you are thinking about giving large sums of money to um, charities it's definitely best to do your research because A lot of people just give away money and want to feel good, but it's also good to think of it as an investment and how you can do the most good. So it's not asking you to give away more money, but it's asking you to give the money away in a responsible way. And um, basically, they've just authorized eight charities. So out of all the, I want to say hundreds of thousands of charities, might be a bit lower, but they've authorized only eight. And I think it's really good to just scan through the list and um, see if you can consider donating to these charities. So um, I think that would be good if we can all sort of band together during these tough times. At the moment, it's COVID, but, you know, that will change and we're all going to need to support everyone. So this is probably one of the best evidence-based ways to do that. So, yeah, so definitely hop on to givewell.org if you're considering and hopefully those charities are like tax deductible or something in your country, which would be in your best interest. So anyway, this is not... formal advice, but it's just a good place to go. Thank you.